Good morning, CBF. The scripture reading today is taken from Luke chapter 19 as we can continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Pastor. Thank you, Pam. Good morning again. Uh, you know where you are. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Very familiar story. If you grew up in a Christian home, you probably uh, sang the song that goes something like, I'm not going to sing it to you because I want you to come back next week, but it probably goes something like, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, wee little man was he, right? And my kids love that song. And uh, very, very familiar story, but it's very easy because it's familiar to take it for granted. So um, I hope we can uh, do justice to what God's word has to say to us today. But before we do that, I want to I pray again because um, there's a lot of people struggling physically and other things going on here in our church around the world, the world as well. And I just want to come before the Lord as we approach him and try to learn from him. Would that be okay? Would you bow your heads with me? And let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning uh, with thankful hearts just for all that you've done for us, for the sacrifice that Jesus presented to, to you on the cross and the agony that he went through, that he suffered, in order that we might be able to experience salvation and be redeemed. Father, we, we thank you for your love that you lavish upon us. We thank you for your grace, your mercy. And Father, right now, we, we come before you heavy-hearted, and we just, we see so many different things going on around the world, so many people getting sick and so many problems, and Father, we know that sin has a huge part in it, in it. but Father, in the midst of our agony, I know you provided hope, but as we face this temporary life, I pray that you would just help us to see you. I pray for for the members of this church, those who are not here today because they're sick or they're experiencing some, some sort of health problems, I pray that you would go before them. Pray for Pastor David and his family. I pray that you uh, heal their bodies, that you would bring them back here soon. 
But above everything else, Father, we love you and we praise you for the hope that you've given to us because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, there are many people in this world that would define success as um, a, a comfortable bank account. Or maybe somebody driving a, a very nice car or dressing up really nice every day to go to work. Maybe success could be determined that way. And, and according to the standards that we see, Zacchaeus was actually fitting that standard pretty, pretty well. But what we realize is as we look at this story today, we realize that Zacchaeus actually was, <laughs> he was a negative influence. He was largely, his success was largely negative because he had all the things that the world, world provides, but because he had all those things and he was financially off, he had, listen to this, he had no friends, he was not popular, he was rejected by his own people, he was seen as an unclean man working for a pagan nation that oppressed the nation of Israel. And he was a man without a relationship with the Lord. How does that sound to you? Now, what makes the story so fascinating is that as we, as we go through today, and hopefully that's what you're gonna, we're going to realize, is that what Zacchaeus needed the most was exactly what he didn't realize he needed. And that's the realization that his greatest need could not only be fulfilled by the things of the world, but could only be fulfilled by the one he had not yet met. This is a story of transformation. This is such a powerful story, and for some reason a very special one that only Luke records that. So only the Gospel of Luke has a story of Zacchaeus here. And it provides a revealing moment in which Jesus declares that his purpose is to seek Listen to this, verse 10, seek and save the lost. So through Zacchaeus' interaction with Jesus, we, we witness a transformation from a life of sin into a life of redemption. A life that's going to show us forgiveness and joy and humility and transformation in the midst of different and difficult circumstances. So let's, let's dive into this text here. Zacchaeus chapter 19, verse 1, gives us the setting where we meet also a desperate sinner. The setting of the story, verse 1, says this, Jesus entered Jericho, Jericho and was passing through it. So, last week we learned from the story of the healing of the blind man that Jesus is approaching Jericho. He's actually going up to Jerusalem. The healing of the blind man happens just outside of Jericho. So now he's moving towards his main goal, which is the cross. And he's, as he's passing through Jericho, he meets a man named Zacchaeus. Now, verse 2, look with me at his preeminence, what this man was all about. It says this, now a man named Zacchaeus was there. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, this is an ironic name, and let me tell you why. Usually when you get a, get a name for a child, you, you go over and you try to realize what's the meaning behind, and you, know, you, you want to know what the, what the name looks like and sounds like, and, and what's, what's behind the name, where, that, where it came from, and all that stuff, but his name is extremely ironic. Zacchaeus is actually a name that meant to be clean, to be pure, to be righteous. 
But here's where he is. Listen to this. He's an outcast. He's unclean. He is unrighteous. And he is impure. Everything his parents wished for, he is not. Everything mommy and daddy hoped for for this little boy, he's not. He's actually complete the opposite. He was everything opposite than his name, than what his name meant. And according to the Jewish culture, he would be unwelcome and live a life of isolation. Not only he was doing everything opposite from what mommy and dad desired for him, but now he's isolated. Remember, he has all the riches of this world. He has everything in his bank account. Everything's fine financially. But on the other side, he, he's, he, he's a destitute. He's in a desperate position. He has an ironic name. And now he has, a, he has also a pr- pr- uh, prominent position. Look at verse 2. It says that he's a chief of tax collector. Now, what does, what does that really mean? Well, just put in perspective here, this is the only time in the New Testament that this word is actually used. So now he's not a tax collector, he's, he's above them. This, this guy's got a, a really high up position. He's, he is the man in the job. Every tax collector has to report back to him. And what is fascinating here is that he, he works for the Roman Empire. He's a Jew working for a pagan nation. He's a Jew that's working for those who are oppressing mommy and, da- mommy and daddy back home. Automatically made him a traitor in the eyes of his own people. And listen to this, the Jewish Mishnah, which is the Jewish oral traditions that records what oral traditions were in the Jewish society. It says this, that a tax collector was so detestable that they should not even be considered a human being. That, that you could lie to them because lying to an animal was not a sin. This is how outcast this guy is. Do you realize he's got a really comfortable pension going on? He's looking at retirement really well here, but everything else is against this guy. His, his life is a complete negative example of what not to do. I don't know when was the last time you actually lied to an animal. But that's what they thought about Zacchaeus. And so Zacchaeus is working as a chief tax collector. He works in Jericho. In Israel during that time, you would find three three main cities that would be the cities where the tax collectors would be working because they were the major cities. So you went up to uh, Capernaum up north, and that would be one of them. You would go down to the, to the coast where Caesarea was, and that was the second one, and Jericho was actually the third. Most scholars would argue that Jericho was actually the most wealthy of all the cities here. So if you think about money, and money is dri- what's driving you, you're going to go where money is. So Zacchaeus is, is there. That's all he thinks about. But not only that, not only he has a dreamland for financial gain, he has an unmatched influence. The text says here that he was a rich man, which means he was richer than any tax collector in the area. To the point that tax collectors would go out and they would collect the finances from the people and they would bring it in. And guess what? The tax collectors robbed the people or cheated the people from their money and Zacchaeus would cheat the tax collectors over their money. 
He's a wealthy man. And from the outside looking in, everything looks fine when you look at finances. He's abandoned all the connections that he's had with people. He's left family, relationships, everything behind for one purpose and one purpose only. I want my bank account to be well. Now think about this with me. Zacchaeus chose to serve an oppressing nation, the nation of the Roman, or the Roman Empire, in order to achieve a better life and did not care about the relationships and the status that he left behind. Does that tell you something about a man? Does that say something about his character? Now look with me in verse 3. Here's what it says. He was trying to look at Jesus, but being a short man, he could not see over the crowd. Somebody joked with me the other day if I could see it. And I said, I, th I think I can see it fine. Zacchaeus didn't have the same advantage. Now, the average Jew, it's usually what they say, he's a male, it's 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, six, five, So Zacchaeus is a short man to the point that he cannot see over the crowd. So here's what we see. We see his effort. He puts a lot of effort into this, okay? And look at this. It says that he is trying to get to look at Jesus, which means that the translation of the, Hebrew, the Greek word here is that he's doing something without any success, all his attempts are failing. It's been, it's been broken. He's not get, getting to where he wants to be. And he's failing in his effort. And when he fails in his efforts, he realizes there's a dilemma. And the dilemma comes in two forms for Zacchaeus. And there's probably not a dilemma that he was facing just now. But I believe, based on what the text says about Zacchaeus, that he faced that dilemma every single day of his life. And the first one is, he's facing the crowd. We know they don't like him. We know they've rejected him because he has rejected it, cho choosing, chosen a different nation to serve instead of the nation where he was born. They don't like him. They rejected him, and now he's facing the crowd again. But look at the second one, which is actually the first in the text, which is his stature. He's short. Even if he was able to get in the middle of the crowd, he would not be able to see it. He's not trying to get closer. That's not the point. He wants to get all the way up front. Because if he gets closer, he still won't be able to see it. And so, he has a plan. And here's the question. Why is, he, why is Zacchaeus so hard-pressed to see Jesus? Doesn't he have everything this world has offered? The answer is we don't know. Perhaps he's curious. Perhaps he's looking for acceptance. Dr. Constable, who was a former uh, Bible professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, says that Zacchaeus' curiosity about Jesus was understandable. And here's, here's his argument. Since one of Jesus' disciples had been a tax collector, so perhaps Zacchaeus learned that one tax collector had been accepted by this guy named Jesus. Maybe he wanted to check it out. In addition, Jesus had a reputation for associating himself with people of the same caliber, the sinners, 
the broken, the destitute, the prostitutes, the women. Perhaps Zacchaeus wants to be there. Perhaps he wants to see if this is actually true for him. What we know is that he lives in a alienated not life from God. Before society, he is an outcast. He's hated by everyone. Before the Lord, he stands condemned. He knows that. He's consciously aware that every single day that goes by, he is a sinner. He's rejected by his people, and because of his sin, he has no relationship with the Lord. We know that to be true because in verse 8 that we're going to look in a little bit, it says that he asked the question, if I have cheated anyone, which means I have cheated, so let me do restitution here. Let's, let's, let, allow me to make restitution for, this, for the people that I have cheated. He knows that. They're greedy. Those are tax collectors. They were constantly cheating each other. I'm assuming that he even cheated his own tax collectors that worked under him. That's just a life that Zacchaeus chose. And there he is. A wee little man in the middle of a big crowd. Now here's a question for you. Do, do we allow the crowds of life to stop us from pursuing what God wants from us? Do we allow the obstacles that we face from allowing us to see who he is and what he has for us? Isn't that what God did for the blind man last week? <laughs> Didn't he open his sight so he could see? Now, here's what Zacchaeus does. Here's the solution he finds. Look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4 says, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him because Jesus was going to pass that way. According to most scholars, the sycamore tree was a short tree with a really large trunk and with really long branches. So at this point, when he climbs this tree, he is not only able to see Jesus, but for the first time perhaps in his life, he's above the crowd. And what is interesting about this is that for a man, a male, a guy to run in that society was an undignified effort. He would not only not run, but you would never see a man climbing a tree. That's why what the father does for the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 is so amazing. When he sees the son and he runs to him and he embraces him and he kisses him and he says, welcome back. This guy is coming to a point in his life that he does not care about what anybody else thinks because he has done everything wrong up to this point. And now, if he needs to climb a tree to see the one he came here to see, he will do it. Now, you've seen some children here in this church, right? Have you ever noticed how the wee little ones walk? They're trying to find their balance. When you have babies, they're like, when, once they start to walk, they, they, they stand up, they fall, they stand up, they take one step, and they fall. And they, did you ever ask them if they care about it? Does any child ever care about, if they see a toy, the toy is the goal. 
Doesn't matter how many steps it takes. It doesn't matter how many times they're going to fall. They're going to get to the goal unless mommy and daddy comes along the way, right? He, he, he's like a child right now. He's showing childlike faith. He does not care about anybody. Oh, how, how I wonder if I could be like that sometimes. If I just knew that God had something for me and I obeyed that and I didn't care about what anybody else thought of me because I believed that he was leading me. This guy is in that position. And desperation leads us sometimes to do those things. He's not deterred by the crowd. And, and his short stature right now does not become an excuse. Oh, I couldn't do that. I'm too short. Michael, why don't you sweep the floor? I just, too, too far. I just can't reach. Michael, why don't you clean under the bed? And it's like, my knees hurt if I go down. Just like, no, no excuses. If I have to climb a tree, I'll climb the tree. The boldness of, a, of such an undignified action, listen to this, illustrates as Zacchaeus was, was only focused in one thing. His status, his reputation, his appearance before a large crowd completely disappeared before him. Suddenly, all that he cared about was seeing Jesus. Someone has said that I wish there were more of us who did not mind being laughed at if only we did what we did and helped us to see Jesus. Which comes to the first principle in your notes. Principle number one. Be desperately persistent like Zacchaeus. Don't let mockery, rejection, and the fear of this world to stop you from seeing him. Verse 5 and 6. And Jesus came to that place. He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down quickly because I must stay at your house today. So he came down quickly and welcomed Jesus joyfully. Now, this is a really strange passage, and, and it fits right in the middle of our passage right here, but this is really strange two verses. Because think with me for a second. Jesus is coming down. He's outside of Jer Jericho. He heals a blind man. He's going through Jericho right now. And Jesus, for three years plus, has been really famous. And he's a well-known teacher. And he gets to Jericho. He gets to Jericho. And listen to this. He can ask anyone to have a meal with him. Anyone would like to have a meal with Jesus. And as he's passing by, just so happened that God in his divine mind finds a wee little man standing on a wee little, little tree named Zacchaeus. So Jesus looks up, which means he knows where he is, and then he calls him by the name. And this is amazing because this is a divine calling. And I'm not saying divine calling in the sense that he called him to do something, but this is God, God allowing Jesus to show his divinity. He calls him by the name, which is a personal calling. He knows who he is just like he knows who we are. He knows the true meaning of his name, which is to be righteous and pure and clean. And he knows that his name does not match with how he lives. Listen to what John 10, 27 says. My sheep, listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. 
Not only he calls him by the the name, but he commands him to obey. Listen to what he says. He says here, come down quickly. Now, I tell my kids sometimes to do things quickly. And that doesn't always happen. This guy, how this guy comes down the tree is like, if he came down faster, he would have fallen. Like it's, he calls him to obey. And, and what, we, what we see here from Zacchaeus is just immediate obedience. Because I must stay at your house, which I have a divine appointment with you. For someone who wished to just have a glimpse of Jesus, can you, can you understand what that have meant for him to say, to hear his name being called perhaps the first time in a very dignified way, and now he calls him by the name, which he doesn't know the guy, the guy doesn't know him, but the guy knows his name, and now he's calling him to, have, to go to his house? I don't think about, I don't, I don't know about you, I would have fallen out of that tree. I would just prob- have a heart attack. Zacchaeus' obedience, listen to this, is impressive. Everything that Jesus tells him to do, and I'm going to read it again for you. Listen to what he says. Zacchaeus, come down because I must stay at your house today. But here's, here's what he says. He came down quickly. His, his obedience is 100% to what Jesus requested of him. Now the question for us is, do, do we obey quickly? When we read God's word and we are confronted with his truth, do we obey immediately? When was the last time that God told you to be obedient and you came down from your tree quickly? His excitement here reminds me of the shepherds in Matthew chapter, 20, uh, chapter 1, verse 21, when, they, when the text says that they heard from the angel that Jesus was coming as a baby, and they hurried to see him. Spurgeon has a phenomenal quote, quote that says, Christ will never force himself into a man's house and sit there against the man's will. That would not be an action of a guest, but an unwelcome intruder, and that's not what Jesus is. Marshall says that the coming of Jesus to share his home is a sign of fellowship and also a sign of ultimate forgiveness. His excitement led him to full obedience, and full obedience led him to joyfully welcoming his Savior. So if the principle number one is to focus desperately in Jesus, principle number two is don't let all the distractions and worries of this life keep you from obeying and welcoming Jesus who is our seeking Savior. Now let me contrast Zacchaeus' reaction with the reaction of the crowd, verse 7. Look with me again in verse 7. Here's what it says. And when the people saw it, they complained. He has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, let me look with you this really quick. This is nothing new for Jesus. In Luke chapter 5, verse 2, it says that Jesus had been confronted by the Pharisees. And they said, hey, listen, look at that guy. He's, he's eating with sinners. He's friends with them. 
There was nothing new for Jesus, what the crowd was presenting in this situation. What's ironic here is that later on, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, the text says, listen to this, blessed is the king. This is the, the people uh, proclaiming him. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And I bet, I, I, I wish I knew, but I bet there's some individuals in this crowd complaining right now who less than a week from this moment will be crowning him as a king. They're complaining that he's actually eating with this guy, that he's fellowshipping with this guy who is a sinner. But in less than a week, they're going to proclaim him as the king. The complaining here is not about Zacchaeus. You see, the crowd has turned their back on Zacchaeus. The complaining here now is towards Jesus. They don't understand his ministry. They don't understand that he's ministering to the lost, to the oppressed, that he's called this guy who is an outcast to have a relationship with him. And that's where things get complicated. Because perhaps you're here today and perhaps you're watching us from, from home. What we see here is the difference between religion and a relationship. Now listen to this. Religion says, get your act together. The gospel says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is not God's acceptance for you having cleaned up your own life. But it is an invitation to accept the relationship that he has to offer for you and consequently be transformed. Do you see how those two things are opposite? I don't do my works in order to get an entrance into God's kingdom. I obey him because of what he has already done for me. And perhaps that's why the cross is behind me and we look forward. Someone says that complaining becomes the poison that infects the soul, hardens the heart, damages relationships and perspectives, and distorts realities. Uh, recently, I came across a book by Joseph Stoll called the, the Weight of Your Words. In that book, he says that murmuring or complaining ignores God's potential, leads to self-pity, thrives in an atmosphere of fear, and if unchecked, listen to this, can breed rebellion and dissatisfaction. And isn't that exactly where the crown finds themselves right now? In complete dissatisfaction because Jesus has chosen to go inside of a sinner's house instead of staying with them. Zacchaeus has already taught us two very valuable lessons. Persistency and how important it is to avoid distractions. But here's the third one. Do ignore complaining people. And what I mean by that is this. Do not identify yourself with complaining people. Let the Lord declare that the truth of who you are in him. Don't become one who complains and judges because Jesus might be in the process of saving someone and sanctifying someone right in front of you. Zacchaeus might have been a wee little man as it relates to his physical condition, but he's also a great sinner as it relates to his spiritual condition. And because of that, he needs the truth. That's why a great sinner needs, needs a great transformation, and only God can provide that. Look at verse 8 and 9. This is the redeemed 
saint. This is how Luke describes the ending of this passage. He says this, but Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, look, Lord, half of my possessions I now give to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone of anything, I'm paying back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, today, listen to this, today salvation has come to this household because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, let me make some observations here. When did this conversation happen? Like, did it happen right when he came down from the tree? Did it happen like when they were walking towards Zacchaeus' house? Did it happen when he was inside of the house, when he was having supper with him? We don't know. But let, let me give you my two cents here. Listen to the words here. Today, salvation has come to this household. He's making, in my eyes, he's making Zacchaeus an illustration. He's saying, listen, right now, salvation has come to this household, and I am going to go to his house because he too is a son of Abraham. There's, there's no way of sorting this out, but it looks like Jesus is making the point. Jesus is testifying, seems like, publicly that, hey, listen, this is what's happening. Today, salvation has come. But why? Simply because Zacchaeus, I believe, had been justified by faith. Zacchaeus had already believed. So someone said that to prove, to prove himself uh, to be not only a son of Abraham in, in the sense of a Jew looking for a kingdom, but also as a son of Abraham because he demonstrated the faith like Abraham. Abraham's faith was in the promise that the Messiah was to come. Zacchaeus' faith was in the promise of the Messiah who was right there. One looked forward, the other one was complete. And that's why when you read John chapter 8, verse 39 and 40, it says this, they, which means it's a group of Judeans, listen to what it says, they said to Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus replied, if, if you're Abraham's children, you would be doing the deeds of Abraham, but now you're trying to kill me. A man who has told you the truth. They call themselves the son of Abraham. They're like, I, I'm part of this lineage. And Jesus says, but your actions don't match the actions of, of Abraham, and your faith does not match the faith of this man. And now he's looking at the crowd as he sees Zacchaeus, and he says, see this man? His faith has healed him, and now he wants to sell everything. Which is faith always comes before works. They proclaimed they believed, but they didn't. Zacchaeus showed his believed by his proclamation. Zacchaeus' faith is first seen in his submission to Jesus as his master. And then it is manifested publicly by saying, I'll give everything away. His works did not save him, but they were an outward expression of an inward reality. One commentator says, contrary to the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus does not hold tight to his finances, but offers it to make restitution for the wrong he has brought upon the people. With open hands, he says, here it is. I used to joke with a friend of mine from Brazil. I said he was such a cheapskate that we used to tell him, like, dude, if you put something inside of your, like a, a medicine or uh, in a piece of airborne in your mouth, in your, in your hands, and you close it, you can swim across the river and open your hands on the other side, and it's, that medication is going to be dry. 
That, that's, that's how cheap he was. But here's not Zacchaeus. The law requires Zacchaeus to pay restitution and pay up to 20% more of what he had stolen. He's saying he's going to do four times more. And that's why it's interesting that Jim Elliot wrote this quote that's become very popular throughout the years. He says, he is not fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus' declaration is this. Salvation is here. Listen to this, church. Jesus declared 2,000 years ago, salvation is here. Why did Jesus do that? I want to close with verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me again. Verse 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus makes a declaration about his mission. Do you remember Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 that I mentioned to you in the beginning where Jesus is being announced to Joseph and the angel actually is making the communication and he says, he says to him, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now Jesus is making a declaration, fulfilling what the angel said, but not only saying that what the angel said was true, I am him. Now, the fascinating imagery here is the imagery that comes out of the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 34, Ezekiel makes a a proclamation to the nation of Israel saying that the leaders of the nation have not been able to take care of the the, the people of God. They have not shepherded them them well. They have not led them well. And in the midst of that chapter, in verse 16, he says that a shepherd will come And he makes a declaration saying, I will seek the lost. Listen to what the shepherd's going to act like. I will seek the lost, and I will bring them back, those who are stray. I will bandage their injured, the injured, and strengthen the sick. This is what Jesus has done. So remember, Jesus did not come to save or to call the righteous, but he came to call and to save the sinners. Principle number four. Here's what it says. Let inward change that results from faith produce outward action. Faith will produce joy, forgiveness, humility, and transformation that others will notice. Now, I want to close with this quote here from the bottom of our, our page that says this. It was to save sinners that Jesus came into the world. He did not come to help them to save themselves, nor to induce them to save themselves, nor even to enable them to save themselves. Jesus came to save them. And so if that was true 2,000 years ago, you need to remember this today. This is the truth you can take at home from here. That if the reality that Jesus came to save sinners was established 2,000 years ago in his presence, physical presence, then that reality is true today. I'm not sure where you are in your life. I'm not going to make an assumption that your life is okay. Maybe your life is not. But I know one thing. If Christ was able to rescue this guy who was a wee little little man to make him 
a man who would believe in him, I believe he can reach any one of us. And if that's true, he can reach you. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your promise. Father, thank you that you accomplished the impossible. That you brought your son down to this earth to pay for the penalty of our sins, to give us hope, and to bring us back to life. And Father, I pray for those who are here today, for those who have a relationship with you, I pray that they will continue to grow, that they will never forget that you are a God who can accomplish great things. But Father, for those who are here maybe questioning their faith or maybe not even sure about what's going on, they didn't, maybe they don't even know why they came. And Father, I pray that they will learn from Zacchaeus and they will find hope in the fact that Jesus is able, that he can accomplish and he alone can accomplish the impossible. So Father, we thank you and we praise you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.